Well, it's uh, it's good to be here. I'm really glad uh, that I was able to come back, and it feels like it's been a year, I guess, about, about a year's time. Uh, we, we're going through a really awesome series, the Sermon on the Mount, which is probably Jesus' greatest expression of, of his teaching about what he's he's here for, what he's calling all of us to, and we're specifically talking about the Beatitudes. Now, I, I kind of wish that I had an easier one, because I, <laughs> I, I sort of struggle with this one just, just a little bit. Um, I don't know if it's because there's this, this part of me that always wants to prove myself and, 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 and really show what I'm capable of, but this one really challenged me personally, so I, I honestly tried to get down and wrestle with the scripture, like, what, what is the scripture saying in that time, and what is it trying to say to us today? Uh, so, today we're talking about um, the Beatitude of Meekness. The Beatitudes are a series of these radical wisdom sayings that kind of set the life of what we're called to against the life of what we're leaving behind. Within the entire Sermon on the Mount is also this call to bring and spread the, uh, the kingdom of God down to earth. God's kingdom, as opposed to human kingdoms, is a holy kingdom. It involves an excess of mercy and compassion, a fiery devotion to righteousness, justice, and holiness. And it's a place where self-interest is de-emphasized and consideration for others is brought to the forefront. But as good as this sounds, I see an overwhelming lack of interest in Christians at large uh, to spread Christianity um, and its values into the world. And while I have many theories as to why this is, I believe one major reason is a spiritual misunderstanding of today's beatitude. So if you open up to Matthew 5, 5, if you have your Bibles, I think I also have it up here as well on the slide. Um, so Matthew 5, 5, very short, simple. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Some translations have gentle in place of meek, but we're going to go with meek because I think it kind of gets it a little more of what we're trying to talk about. Uh, as I said, the general spirit with how this verse is understood and lived out, I think, greatly contributes to the apathy I see in today's Christians, as well as myself, uh, because based on our current culture, there's, there's sort of two ways that this verse is understood. The first way is reading it uh, in your heart as, blessed are the non-boat rockers, or blessed are those who don't make waves, <laughs> those who do not stir up trouble, those who do not, not fight, uh, all, all those things. It's a way of reading this verse that calls for an extreme kind of pacifism, where one avoids confrontation, even at the cost of their own integrity. Another way of reading it is like this. Uh, in a spiritual sense, maybe this is sort of how I approach this verse, but it's, it's blessed are the weak. <laughs> it's a way of uh, resisting the reality of this verse based on a fear that if you aren't actively pushing for yourself and bettering your interests, that you'll be crushed by everyone else. Uh, it's very hard to get a raise at work in this way of thinking if you're not putting yourself out there, constantly trying to showboat and do better than the people around you. And one philosopher has a lot of sympathy for those that feel the second way. Uh, has anyone ever heard of Friedrich Nietzsche? He's a German philosopher, often hailed as a champion of atheism. 
and responsible for quotes like God is dead and we killed him, as well as what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Those are kind of the popularized things. I highly doubt those people have ever actually read him. But <laughs> um, I first read Nietzsche in college, and despite the off-putting tone he had towards Christians, I couldn't help but really enjoy his witty and clever writing style. And if you've never read Nietzsche, Nietzsche, you would be surprised to find out that he had actually an incredibly high view of Christ. Um, his most potent and powerful critiques were actually directed mostly towards uh, those that claimed to be Christ followers, or the Christians. And though he had a really limited grasp, in my opinion, of a philosophical understanding of Christianity as a religion, he was a really gifted social critic and highlighted some of the greatest Christian vices that we still kind of have today. In particular, when I learned that I was going to be doing this beatitude of meekness, one part of Nietzsche's writing immediately came to mind that has just stayed in my mind ever since I first read him. Uh, it is Maxim 31 in Twilight of the Idols, and I have it up here as well. Yeah, It says, uh, when stepped on, a worm doubles up. That is clever. In that way, he lessens the probability of being stepped on again. In the language of morality, humility. So what's he saying here? Well, let's imagine that the worm is a moral person, the good person. The stepping here is the assertive person, the person asserting their will onto the moral person. Instead of resisting the stomp, the moral person curls up, hides away. But even worse, the moral person labels this curling up as a virtue. They hold it up high, they teach it to others, spreading to as many people as possible that this action is indeed the morally right thing to do when stepped on. In doing so, the moral person is both declaring sort of moral victory and also lessening their chances of being stepped on again. So I think Nietzsche astutely criticizes this moral, uh, this, this kind of morality entirely motivated and formed by and spread by um, a kind of coward. And I have to say, for this particular criticism, I, I, I agree with parts of it. What is being hailed as a virtue in Christianity was not exactly what Christ intended by his teachings. It's simply an expression of this innate sense of fear or cowardice. I can't tell you how many sermons that, and teachings that I've heard that ultimately make the right point, but they start out on this topic where the pastor will say something like, meekness is not weakness, and then proceed to lay out a way of living that calls people to something <laughs> A, a theology of non-action motivated by fear of self-preservation. But does Nietzsche's criticism have teeth today? Are we actually desiring to be meek, but instead living out this kind of worm theology? To answer this question, I'm going to present today's message in the form of a kind of challenge. The challenge is God calls us to spread uh, his kingdom on the earth. And at the same time, how are we supposed to do that if we're also called to be meek and not put our self-interest over others. To meet this challenge, I want to do three things, kind of highlight what kind of meekness Christ is calling us to, contrast this to the kind of meekness displayed by Christians today, showing how we are either grossly falling short of Christ's expectations or how we're meeting them. And then three, how we as a meek people, can be dangerous force on the earth, growing each day into Christ's expectation of being meek and spreading his kingdom influence into the world.
So to begin, what aspect of meekness that what aspect of meekness is Christ calling us to? It's hard to tell immediately from the verse itself because it's essentially a wisdom saying. It's, it's really deep, but also incredibly short. <laughs> and read in a vacuum, just reading this all by itself, it might actually sound like Christ is calling for a kind of radical pacifism. That, that only the most meek people will inherit this huge and great reward. But the key word here that it hinges on is this word uh, praus, uh, which is the Greek word for, which translated as meek. Um, but it, it does not entirely mean mild or gentleness. It's somewhere between gentleness and strength. It's like having a strength, but abstaining from using it. And uh, as a contrast to meekness, the wrathful person actually will draw their sword, while the meek person, though they have the power to use the sword, sheathes it when they could have used it. A little later into the Sermon on the Mount, if you uh, skip down to verse 38 in Matthew 5, Jesus further elaborates on what he's calling us to. Uh, at least I think this particular one is sort of a, a, a bigger elaboration. Uh, it starts in verse 38. I have it up here. Uh, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not show opposition against an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other toward him also. So again, maybe if you're reading this all by itself, sounds like radical pacifism. But reading a few commentaries like John Nolan's commentary on Matthew, the thrust of this verse seems to be on resisting being a retaliation in kind. Uh, for instance, he says, in this example, uh, this is John Nolan speaking, in this example, we think most readily of one man picking a fight with another. His challenge is not to be taken up. The self-assertion involved is to be challenged not by counter-self-assertion, but by means of a totally different form of challenge, the moral strength of the one who aggressively signals his preference for suffering wrong over feeding the spiral of violence. Craig Blomberg also kind of elaborates on this verse as well when he says, uh, we must nevertheless definitely resist evil in certain contexts, um, James 4.7 and 1 Peter 5.9. Striking a person on the right cheek suggests a backhanded slap from a typically right-handed aggressor and was a characteristic Jewish form of insult. Jesus tells us not to trade such insults even if it means receiving more. In no sense... Verse 30, does verse 39 require Christians to subject themselves to, uh, or others to physical danger or abuse, nor does it bear directly on the pacifism just war debate? Well, simply, what's being said here is that presenting the other cheek is kind of challenge of moral defiance. It's telling the aggressor that they do not have power over you. In these times, a backhanded slap meant you were making some kind of really gross form of disrespect to another person. It's kind of like if you were in public uh, and someone started to slander you, yell at you, spit on you. If we respond and lash out with kind of extreme prejudice that comes from receiving those, uh, those slanders, we're showing others and God that we are completely motivated by our own self-interest. In doing so, we give these offenses a sort of power over us. 
but presenting your other cheek in such a situation shows a counter challenge that you cannot be shaken by such offenses. Your passions are tempered because you have a higher morality that you're answering to. Christ is not saying here that you should never resist evil. As Craig Blomberg says, there are contexts where resisting evil is even commanded for. And for instance, like 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9, be alert and sober of mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And then uh, also James 7, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But these instances come out of a person who has a deep sense of discernment and conviction from the Holy Spirit. Who has seen one or two Western movies? Or maybe a bunch of Western movies. <laughs> um, my favorite kind of these Western movies usually revolves around the man protagonist uh, who's the hero, you know, goes off into seclusion, maybe was a soldier before, really doesn't like violence, doesn't want to resort to it, but throughout this series of events, he has to endure so much uh, abuse, so much things that go wrong around him that it actually causes in him a kind of righteous indignation and uh, the time for inaction ends. <laughs> you know, the, the sort of, I've had all I can stands and I can't stands no more type of thing. Um, now, imagine these movies, but when the first offense is done against the hero, the very first one, he immediately draws his gun and fires. It wouldn't make for a particularly impressive story, and it certainly wouldn't be an admirable kind of hero, but why is that? It's because it makes the hero seem only concerned for himself. An admirable hero leans into an excess of patience, restraint, and mercy. They go beyond what is expected because they're strong moral figures. They do not drag themselves into the mud with evildoers. They resist them, and in doing so, they win the more important battle the spiritual one, before they ever wage the physical one. It's a battle of the soul, not really a battle of the flesh. And the best heroes in all of writing are the kind that never compromise their moral integrity, even in the face of their own safety. So take Superman, for instance, which I have... Oh. <laughs> I work in comics, so I have to use Superman. Uh, Superman is great because, uh, at least historically, he uh, encompasses that, that unshakable morality so well. It's what primarily defines Superman as a character. He will always protect others. He never murders. He never acts out of anger and self-preservation. He puts others before himself and is always to, willing to make the more difficult decision when the easy decision would be to put his values on hold. And that's why Zack Snyder's Superman was so bad. <laughs> so bad. Uh, if you had a chance to see either The Man of Steel, Justice League, um, what's the other one? Batman versus Superman. Uh, the, the thing that I really didn't like about it is that, maybe you know, Superman gets forced into this situation in The Man of Steel where he has to kill Zod in order to protect a family. This is kind of the modern way of these writers and directors of humanizing the comic characters. They think they're being so clever and, and deep and profound 
because they're showing how even heroes sometimes have to make the decision that compromises their values. But I kind of just find it lazy, honestly. Um, just to show you the contrast, Lauren and I uh, have seen all, all those movies, you know, the, the Zack Snyder verse and all that. They're not all terrible movies, but just in this particular scenario, we, we also watched uh, Superman vs. Doomsday, which is an animated movie of the death of Superman. And in the middle of the movie, it was funny, because Lauren started to comment about it. Why does this character uh, so much better <laughs> than the other movies that we've seen? And I really agreed with her, but after thinking about it, I realized it was because this character felt more like the actual Superman I had come to know. In fact, there's one scene where Luther, Superman's greatest enemy, who has constantly tried to kill him, degrade him, destroy him, uh, hurt people of his families, um, all those things, Luther starts being attacked by the monster Doomsday, and in a final blow, Doomsday picks up Luther and throws him uh, against a wall, but right before he hits the wall, and it's, it's just himself, so it's just me, like if I hit a wall at that speed, probably wouldn't see a single bit of me ever, ever again. I'd just be vaporized. But right before he hits the wall, there's this kind of uh, stop, and the camera pans out, and there, right behind Luther, uh, is a severely hurt and battle-weakened Superman catching him, uh, taking the shock into the wall instead of Luther. That's the kind of Superman that I remember growing up with, the, the guy who did not shake his values. He could have let Luther probably hit the wall and died. Hey, two birds with one stone. Now I'm going to go try it and eliminate Doomsday as well. But uh, he, he made the tough decision. And I would say in both of these examples, the heroes of Western movies and Superman, they display the courageousness sort of meekness that we're after. And would you say that any of these people that I've mentioned, uh, the kind of meekness that they have is more worm-like? No, I wouldn't think so. And especially our greatest example of that is Jesus Christ himself. Um, someone who had every power at every step of the way to end the abuse against him. Uh, someone who could have called down legions at any moment. He's our, our perfect example of this kind of meekness. And it's primarily about the manner in which these, uh, these characters um, carry themselves. They, the way they put others before themselves and the strong, unmoving sense of morality. So let's contrast those kind of characters' meekness uh, against the kind of meekness that Nietzsche is criticizing. Cowardly meekness is what I think informed by a set of principles that usually revolve around not rocking the boat. It's a live and let live sort of philosophy. It's a way of living and hoping for the best possible solution to every strife, but with no moral backbone to make them happen. It turns a blind eye to tyranny in the workplace. It ignores the evils closest to them and never calls them out. It pushes down that sense of consciousness inside of them, or that sense of conscience inside of them. It's essentially just self-deceptive, self though, because though it feigns peace, it usually creates chaos in an, in a, um, out of a sense of indecisiveness and inaction. More than anything, Someone who is meek in the cowardly sense is actively opposed to God's counsel and therefore make themselves in opposition to God's kingdom influence being spread into the world. A meek person, uh, an actual meek person uh, in the biblical sense 
is composed of several kinds of elements. They have humility. They have temperance. They're not self-reliant, or they're not entirely self-reliant. Uh, they're secure in themselves. They actively seek counsel, and they have a strong sense of moral identity. A non-meek person, in contrast, is guided by their passions and emotions. They fear fading away in status. They lack a strong moral identity in the face of pressure. And they pridefully ignore wisdom and counsel of others. A meek Christian, then, submits themselves wholly to God. They give up their sense of self-preservation in favor of God's glory. They recognize the inadequacy and, uh, of their own self-righteousness and the, recognize the evil within themselves and look to God for regeneration and salvation. Only then is the desire to dominate, self-assert, preserve one's status, fall away because the prize is already won, a relationship with God himself. Amen. A non-meek Christian has not come to fully realize the full depth of their sin, the need for redemption, and the, and the inadequacy of their own self-righteousness. Because of that, they often fear confrontation. Dis disagreement is often completely intolerable. Instead of leaning into the spirit by seeking God's counsel and the wisdom of others, they fall into a state of chaos where they either do not act or they overreact. Uh, recently, Lauren and I had an experience that I think contrasts these two ideas of meek and non-meek pretty clearly. Is anyone cat people? <laughs> Anybody? <laughs> Just two? Okay. Well, write your names down because we have some cats for you. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, but cats are great. I wasn't always a cat person, but we rescued one. And when you rescue one, you have to rescue more, <laughs> obviously. And uh, it's all because of the wife. Naturally, I probably would have ignored it. But <laughs> uh, recently, we, we rescued four kittens and have been nurturing them for a few weeks. Me, primarily not wanting to suddenly become the owner of several cats. We spent time trying to find these kittens a new home. One day, my wife gets in touch with someone who's interested in one of our cats. Oh, yay. <laughs> Finally, someone willing to take one of these uh, little kittens off of our hands. Uh, we're going to call this person Bridget for um, just the sake of you know, not revealing names. But um, Bridget is looking for a cat for her neighbor, who also happens to be her landlord, who we will call Jean. Now, before I go any further, it was our desire that any of these kittens that we gave away, we just, we just had a simple kind of request that um, they would be primarily inside cats, especially while they were still kittens. Uh, they were still so small, and we did not want to, we did not think they'd do well outside without their mom. Uh, and Bridget uh, initially told us that Jean was actively looking for a cat, that it would be inside, and that they would take good care of it. Like, oh, oh it's just such a sweet woman. And um, she told us how Jean was a sweet Christian lady. Uh, they went to the same church, and that the cat would be so well-loved. Apparently, Jean had just lost her cat of 15 years and would love to have another companion. I mean, it's just the perfect kind of scenario. It doesn't have any other dogs, anything like that. So because Jean didn't have a smartphone, Bridget decided to pick one of the cats uh, for her, and she picked Theo, which that's Theo right there. <laughs> 
the orange one. Yeah. Um, fast forward a few weeks, the day arrives for us to part with the tiny kitty. So we get little Theo uh, ready for his new home, put him in a little cage, and we drive over to Bridget's house. Leading up to this day, Lauren and I had such high hopes that this was going to be his forever home. Maybe we dreamed a little too much, <laughs> but at the very least, all we wanted to know is that he would be taken care of. That's the bare minimum. When we turned into Bridget's neighborhood, I started to feel that slight hesitancy in my spirit that uh, I know all of us have felt before. It's just that, that small twinge, but, but I ignored it. Um, we pulled up to Bridget's house. She came out to greet us, walked us over to Jean, who really was a sweet, uh, sweet Christian lady. We had a really good time talking to her, introducing ourselves, introducing little Theo, uh, who was just sleeping in the cage. She then walked us to her backyard, and we asked Jean about her old cat that died recently. You know, how, uh, how, uh, how was he? Like, was he a really good cat? And um, come to find out, this cat was not 15 years old when he passed. <laughs> he was like six. Uh, so naturally, we asked Jean how he had passed away. Uh, she said he was tragically run over. Uh, at, <laughs> at, at that point, I was beginning to feel just a little uncomfortable about the whole situation, but I again ignored it. Lauren asked about if Theo would be inside, and she was starting to talk about how we really wanted the cat to be inside, and Jean responded that Theo would visit inside. <laughs> uh, keep in mind, it's over 100 degrees in Texas, and all of us are dripping in sweat. He would not be an inside cat, as Bridget had told us. Uh, Bridget, I think, could sense the disappointment building in Lauren and I, so she like rushed in, jumped in, and started reassuring us that Theo would be so well taken care of. She promised she would even bring the kids over sometimes to see the cat, take pictures with them, send us updates, you know, all the things. I looked over to Theo's cage uh, that Jean had brought out and noticed kind of how old it was. <laughs> there was. There was dirt all over it and inside of it. Uh, Jean told us that she didn't know if it would be better for Theo to be in the cage or if he should be put into what I kid you not was a large bucket. <laughs> um, that was kind of my final straw uh, over, <laughs> over Bridget's incessant overassurance, the weird white lies she had told and was telling us up to that point. I could see that this sweet woman was not really ready, was not really looking for a cat, uh, and she also wasn't prepared to take care of a pretty needy kitty. And you would think what I should have done was tell them, thank you very much, this is not the right kind of situation for him right now, and left. But I stayed. <laughs> I, I pushed down the clear and serious reservations of my spirit to avoid multiple things, but mostly my own embarrassment. The initial part of the story did not really end well. We, we turned over Theo to Jean, got into our car, and left. And, you know, there's a real darkness inside of every human that makes it possible greatest evils in the world. It's that side that abstains from doing anything when you should just do something. <laughs> uh, we like to look into history and much too easily dismiss people like the guards at Auschwitz as the truest of moral monsters. Uh, we hardly ever stop to think that any one of us could easily be capable of becoming that same person. So back to the story, my wife, getting in the car, me getting in the car, just immediately erupts into tears. <laughs> and, and, and when she cries like that, I, 
it's, yeah. When your wife cries like that, it, it just immediately, I, I don't know how else to describe it. Lauren said this is dramatic, but it felt like my soul just kind of was ripping out of my chest, you know. Um, inside, I knew what we were doing was wrong, but I couldn't find a clear pathway to fix it. I consoled her, and we both attempted to make, make up scenarios where leaving Theo there would be okay. But we just couldn't think of one. <laughs> uh, or at least a good one, a convincing one. Maybe it was that we had rescued him and helped him, uh, give him medicine when he was sick. But in either way, this was probably not a good scenario to leave him in. When we got home, just to make sure we weren't crazy, <laughs> we called Lauren's dad, and <laughs> he also agreed we should probably go and ask for him back. <laughs> and, and primarily because he's the guy that gets up in the morning and, and feeds them and does all the things. I don't know how she convinces her father to do all this stuff. It's, it's amazing, honestly. Um, but yes, he, he agreed we should go and probably ask for him back. So we decided to go ask for Theo back, even though we risked some social embarrassment. Uh, and at our first attempt to get Theo back, uh, Jean was not home, unfortunately. But Bridget noticed, so she came over and Lauren kind of explained her the situation. At first, Bridget was understanding, but continued to feed us half-truths, saying things like, Gene probably didn't mean what, that he would only be inside only. Uh, nevertheless, Lauren stood her ground and humbly, humbly insisted that it was probably better if we talked to Gene about taking him back. So Bridget promised us that she would tell Gene, or tell us when Gene was home, and that she wanted to talk to Gene first to kind of prepare her for the devastating news. <laughs> the next 24 hours were a really strange mix of, uh, of Bridget, Bridget sort of barraging Lauren emotionally through text messages that we should leave Theo there. Uh, he will be well taken care of. And when she saw we weren't backing down about getting Theo back, she started reverting to really strange, emotionally manipulative tactics. She would claim that if we asked for the cat back, Jean would be angry and raise Bridget's rent. Or even... <laughs> or even kick her out. Um, that the whole thing would just be blamed on her. If you didn't know any better, you would think that the kind, uh, the kind of person Bridget was describing was a vengeful, wrathful person, and not the sweet Jean we had met the day before. But undeterred, and as a final attempt to resolve the situation, that next day, we drove over to Jean's house, and Lauren wrote her uh, a handwritten letter, included a phone number, and left it at the door. I promise we don't make it a habit of harassing our senior citizens. <laughs> we, we, we don't make it a, a big habit. Just sometimes. But uh, Bridget was pretty fed up with this. I guess she saw us through the window and wrote Lauren a pretty angry text. <laughs> um, but later on, Jean ended up calling Lauren within the next few hours and was actually kind of relieved that we called. Turns out this poor, sweet Christian lady was completely overwhelmed by Theo. <laughs> He had, he had gotten under a piece of furniture in the garage and was, like, refusing to come out. <laughs> she was completely understanding of the whole situation. She was really compassionate and merciful uh, about everything. And arriving at the house to get Theo, Jean looked absolutely exhausted from trying to get Theo out and was really glad we were there. Oh, and by the way, yeah, here's Theo. Um, he had gotten a little bit sick while he stayed under there all night, but he's all healthy again. And if you would like to adopt him, just come up to me <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> this, 
This was all a big, clever ploy to get rid of these <laughs> kittens that are, are uh, in my house, or my in-law's house, actually. But, um, let's see. We're keeping one, OK. <laughs> but there's three available. It's, uh, Theo and, and uh, Denise right there. Oh, but they're all named after the Cosby Show. We have uh, Theo, <laughs> Denise, Claire, and uh, Rudy. So. <laughs> Um, but uh, anyways, <laughs> but imagine for a second if we, we hadn't written the letter and tried to get him back. It turned out the best situation for everyone was that we actually did do that. Uh, I tell this story to highlight the two types of meekness going on here. Lauren was driven to action by an overwhelming sense that if we did nothing, this kitten would suffer. So we sought counsel from her dad, we prayed and sought counsel from the Lord, and she acted with a clear motive and goal, but with a humble and meek disposition. Bridget, on the other hand, may have started out with good intentions. She wanted a cat for her neighbor, you know, all these things. But it soon turned to kind of self-preservation. Uh, in a very real sense, any thought that a cat would suffer even a little bit was pushed down by a bigger fear that a conversation would lead to her being kicked out of her apartment. At every corner, her desire to avoid conflict, however small, caused chaos in her own mind, even believing her rent would be raised as a result. But I'm not trying to paint Bridget as a moral monster. Actually, I'm trying to paint a picture of something that occurs almost daily in a Christian life. And I'm as guilty of it as often, maybe even more so, as, uh, uh, than Bridget herself. What I want to challenge you today is, now that we see that we can be both meek and, uh, and act, how are we going to start advancing God's kingdom in the world? Well, let's start by stopping doing nothing. <laughs> um, I have that on the slide here, just so you can. Or not, maybe I didn't have the slide. I hope I did. Oh, there's no? Oh, oh weird. Okay, maybe I didn't. Um, but essentially, it's just, well, let's start stopping doing nothing. Uh, it's, it's the cowardice pretending to be meekness that is slowly grinding away at the fabric of our moral identity. We need to be more proactive in the world. Uh, the best defense is a good offense. Because if you had laid the groundwork when trials come, it makes us aware of what's going on in culture and gives us the ability to, to sort of act against it. The final section that I'm going to be talking about is just giving some examples of categories where I see that nothing is currently being done but should be. Um, for starters, how many of us have uh, social media? Yeah, a lot of us. I have been overwhelmed by how toxic social media has become <laughs> in the past several years. Um, so here's a place you can exercise your meekness. <laughs> you can start online. You know, do, do you Find yourself or others excessively virtue signaling to others how morally upright you are. It doesn't really seem like meekness. Uh, in fact, I see so much toxic boldness online where people will write long diatribes against uh, other points of views and attack all other points of people, all the while hiding behind a dog picture <laughs> uh, or some kind of fake picture. It's amazing how bold these people feel online, but in real life, they're just cowards. 
Uh, would you be surprised to know that those kind of people are the ones teaching your kids? Uh, maybe more than, than you think, depending on how much they spend on, how much time they spend online. And speaking of online, how much longer are, are we um, going to let ourselves, our children, our friends and family just spend hours and hours and hours online absorbing content from our phones and computers? How much longer are you going to turn a blind eye and think these things are safe? They're eroding our souls because uh, children and, uh, at, at this age are learning values from really morally ambiguous and naive persons online. They're teaching them the kind of worship where one's identity is completely caught up in, in culture. And uh, speaking, of, speaking of children, how much longer are we going to keep uh, how are we going to keep sending our kids out to these schools and, is, and institutions that are actively opposed to Christian values? Um, for K through 12, you might ask yourself, do you know your kids' teachers? Do you know what they're learning in class? Do you know the kinds of things that they are being exposed to from their friends that have almost uncensored access to their phones and computers? And if K through 12 is bad, I promise you, college is so much worse. So much worse. I have a liberal arts degree in philosophy, and uh, so I have a great respect for the discipline of philosophy, the humanities department. Does anyone remember a year ago when Liberty University decided to close down its philosophy department? Anyone remember that? Well, it happened. The biggest Christian institution in America closed its doors to philosophy. And initially, I was upset. But in discussion with some friends uh, who are philosophers themselves, Maybe they lean a tad pessimistically, <laughs> as, as I myself do, but I realize that it probably should have happened sooner. Many of these departments gave up the high pinnacles of learning a long time ago. Uh, and specifically, a friend of mine wrote about, uh, he was asked to write about the decision of Liberty University to close its philosophy department. And this is the kind of thing that he wrote. Uh, he says, and I'll be skipping around some of his article here, but it says, I felt disheartened and disappointed, even a little embarrassed on behalf of those self-proclaimed liberal arts institutions for making such shameful decisions. How could they be so myopic? But as I reflected more about this trend, I came to see it quite differently. The embarrassment remains, but being disheartened and disappointed implies having reasonable expectations that are frustrated. In the present case, we expect certain things, such as having a vibrant philosophy department to be true of any true liberal arts college or university. But this expectation betrays a naive perspective of institutions of higher education today. There are few, if any, true liberal arts colleges or universities left. Why then should we expect there to be many vibrant philosophy departments? The fact is, humanity departments have been on life support for years. And I don't just mean financially. They are on ideological life support. What was, what was once their heart, the canon of literary classics of Western thought and tradition, no longer pumps its blood into these places. By that metric, humanities departments are, for all original intents and purposes, already clinically dead. What we owe them, therefore, is not a plea to, to their host universities to save them, but a plea for their mercy killing, which I will admit is tad dramatic. <laughs> uh, 
but I'm being, I'm being honest with you. There is a striking number of liberal arts universities that are actively attempting to instill, to instill a chaotic moral framework into the minds of students that attend them. Maybe it's not some big conspiracy, but it's, it's the chaos of it that's being put into them. Uh, they're, they're not morally neutral, like you might think. And if we naively keep sending our kids to these institutions, hoping for the best, we're just setting ourselves up for stunning disappointment. The, the STEM categories are probably safer, but even these departments are starting to become uh, hostile towards Christianity, religion in general. Uh, perhaps more tragic to me, <laughs> more tragic than my own master's degree in philosophy, <laughs> uh, but, but I think it's true, is um, we have an almost near complete loss of the mainstream entertainment industry as a safe place to enjoy movies, take our kids, and spend our money. Um, of all the movies and TV shows that I've watched in the past year, hardly any of them can stop preaching for five minutes to actually tell a decent story. And the worst part is, they really don't care what you think about them. They have absolutely no interest in, in advancing Christian values. Okay, put that over here. They have no interest in painting Christianity in a fair light. Okay, put that over here. Or even being neutral. Put that over here. Many writers and directors now see any opportunity to make movies as an opportunity to promote an ideology, an opportunity to just use a platform. Of course, I am generalizing quite a bit, <laughs> but I, I really don't care because you know it's true. If you want to argue about each of these franchises, you know, pick at it, like there's some redeemable quality about this franchise or this franchise, you might, you might, you might be right. Maybe there is some redeemable qualities. But right now, Disney, Marvel, Warner Brothers, uh, I think it's time we seriously stopped to consider and at least started having a conversation with our families and churches about whether this is good for us to keep supporting them. Overall, I think we can agree that doing nothing at least is the worst thing. So let's just start doing something. If you want to use Jesus' command to be meek as an excuse not to act, instead of acting meekly, you're just grossly misunderstanding this passage and risk losing the, uh, the, the blessings that come with it. The next time you get that voice telling you something uh, inside your head that something is wrong, don't just push it down and ignore it for the sake of peace. Listen to it, at least. Sit with it. Bring it to the Lord. Seek counsel. And you know what? If he tells you, you act. And when you do, when you don't do anything, you just continually shove that, and, and you just continually shove that voice deep down out of fear for yourself. Uh, you compromise your entire being and even the world around you. And I'm not saying you should start with the world. Mostly what I'm saying is you should just start with yourself. Then maybe your family and your community. You gradually spread the influence of Christ so that one by one, God's kingdom gets built all around you. Um, and I can go ahead and invite the worship team back up. The way things are going, we desperately need those who are so strong in their moral conviction and devotion to Christ that they cannot be moved by social pressures. Martyrs in history are admired because they were stubborn blocks in the road. That's, that's mostly what they were. By refusing to back down and refusing to react with pure violence, they forced the hand of violent tyrants and made humanity look at the ugliness of itself. Progressiveness is not dangerous because it tries to modernize old ways of thinking. That's not the problem. 
It's dangerous because there's no actual goal in sight. <laughs> it's a constant war of just interested parties where the loudest voices advance their agenda. And it's going to take people who right now say stop, because before you know it, the time to act will have long passed you by. Yeah. Meekness is not a call to inaction. It's a call to act meekly in all you do. If anything, you're probably called to a higher standard of action because you're constantly going to be seeking the Lord's counsel in order to even endure what it takes to be meek. It takes strength not to raise your fist when someone raises a fist against you. And that can only come from the one who did, did it perfectly, who endured all the pain and suffering just to be able to uh, advance God's kingdom in the world. To make the hard choices that may actually affect your sense of self-preservation. But at the same time, it's going to advance the kingdom of God and grow closer in your inheritance, and you'll end up growing closer in your inheritance promised by Christ. So if you will bow your heads with me. Lord, uh, this is a hard message for anybody, uh, especially me, that would rather just put their head into a pillow at the end of the night and not deal with the, the harsh kinds of things that go on in our daily lives. We don't want to have to end up arguing again. We don't want to have to, uh, to confront these issues. We just, we just want things to be easy. That's the tendency of ourselves. But Lord, teach us to uh, desire something greater. Teach us to desire you. Uh, to just desire you so strongly uh, the, and the moral conviction that comes out of that, that we can't help, help but seek you out whenever these things come up. So Lord, in ourselves, in our families, in the world around us, teach us to act meekly, to, without any hesitation, bring your kingdom to the world, but also not to raise our own self-preservation self above others. Teach us to actively encompass the values that Christ lived as he was here on this earth. And Lord, help us to be a part of that great plan of yours to continually bring your kingdom to earth and to share in the glories that are bestowed upon us because of it.